Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you digitally. Let's go ahead and begin class with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we are so grateful for your love and for the truth that you've revealed to us. We are so privileged to live, live at this time in human history when so many uh, significant things are happening, preparing the world for your return. We pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment to see where we can be your agents at this time to present a message that will help open more hearts and minds to prepare for your return. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson number five in the quarterly, God's Mission, My Mission. And the title this week is, is Excuses to Avoid Mission. Excuses to Avoid Mission. The lesson has several that we'll explore, but what are the excuses you've heard? Or then you don't have to confess having used, but maybe excuses that you've heard through the years to avoid mission. Not qualified. Not qualified. That was right up there on my list. I, I'm going to come back to that. We're going to visit that one and just ask a couple more questions about that one. What else? Do not have time. Don't have time. Too, too busy. Out of my comfort zone. Out of my, that, these are all on my list. It's uncomfortable. I'm not comfortable with that. How about somebody else will do it? My favorite, you know what my favorite excuse is? I'm tired. <laughs> you realize how much I don't get done because I'm tired? <laughs> you ever get tired? And say, but then, of course, we're thankful for the Sabbath where we can rest and rejuvenate, right? Get our energy back. I don't feel like it. I have other priorities. Well, back to this one that I'm not qualified or I'm not good enough. So I have a question about that one because I think that is a common excuse. The question is, is that an excuse or is it a fact? Both. Fact. <laughs> when does it become a fact and, and, and when is it an excuse? It's a fact because I'm 85 and I can't remember. If you let it stop you. <laughs> yeah, but how about if somebody were to, let, you know, ask me, for instance, to become the music minister of your church? And I, and I go, well, I'm not qualified for that. Or, or to pay, ask me who can't, uh, I can play maybe one or two very basic songs on the piano that I learned when I was six. Uh, will you play the piano for, for song service today? And I go, I'm not qualified. Am I making an excuse or am I stating a fact? Stating a fact. That's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> That's not so sometimes, sometimes I'm not qualified is a fact. Uh, and so I, it, it, it's basically when you actually aren't qualified, you don't have the skill set to do it and can't reasonably learn the skill set to do it. I think that would be the difference. That's not my spiritual gift. That's another one that could fit into the qualification one, because sometimes one of the you know, things that perhaps can lead us away from doing good ministry is being out of a sense of obligation or desire to help allowing ourselves to be pigeonholed in an area where we're not gifted rather than working in the area where God has actually gifted us. Because what happens if you're actually working in an area where you're not gifted, and I don't mean just covering on a weekend once, 
I mean, this is what you're doing day in, day out, or your responsibilities in your church ministry. It's not where you're gifted. What happens is you get frustrated, tired, exhausted. It actually doesn't cause you to thrive. It's not your calling. But when you're actually ministering in areas where you're gifted, um, you you get a certain sense of rejuvenation and joy out of that ministry. Yes. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Right. And you learn a lot. Should we ask the question, what does it actually mean, though, to be on mission for God? Should we define what it means to do mission? Yes. What does it mean to do mission? Your life should be a witness for God. Your life is a witness, is a mission. So your life, okay. So was Jesus describing mission and our mission when he said the following in Matthew 5, 14 to 16? You are light to the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Is this mission? Yes. 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 Or was Jesus describing mission only when he gave the gospel commission to go out and specifically baptize people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Is that... Is that mission and this let your light shine before men is not mission or are they both mission well your mission begins at home yes okay that, that's another question where do we do mission but but the question is what is mission is mission only going out to evangelize to the unchurched to win them to conversion or is mission living our life in a way that our light shines before men, yes. and we witnessing to God wherever we go. Is that mission? Yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> what about a parent who works 80 hours a week to provide for their children and get them a Christian education, but they don't have time to volunteer in a food kitchen or go on a mission trip with their church? Are they doing mission for Jesus? Absolutely. That's all hand in the front. And, and in the back, We're ambassadors. We're continually being an ambassador for our God, okay? Our daily life. Everything about us should be, I am an ambassador. Mm -hmm. So that means we're on mission all the time. Right. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So then if we, if we define mission only as seeking out people in evangelistic series to convert them for the first time to Jesus, yeah. have we defined mission too narrowly? Yes. 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 Hey, Tim? So when Solomon built the temple... Was he on mission for God? Yeah. Yes. Yes. What about the woodsman who went out and chopped down the trees, the stoneman who cut the stone, the craftsman who made the lamps and the altars and the ark? Yes. Were they on mission? Yes. Yes. What about writers, artists, publishers, IT website masters, and uh, all those operating various things that are advancing the gospel message? in their artwork, their books, and the websites they're running? Are they on mission when they're doing that work? Yes. But they might be doing it in their home. They might not actually be interacting with people. How can that be mission? It's for people. It's okay to work at home. There used to be a song we sang. It was called, Do You Know, O Christian, Your Sermon and Shoes. Oh, I like that, yeah. So then avoiding mission isn't about a specific task. It's actually avoiding living our lives as God would have us live our lives. In other words, living selfishly or for the world rather than living for the kingdom of God. That's really what avoiding mission is, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You agree or disagree? Agree. 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 Well, then let's flip it around. Let's flip our question around. 
can people live selfishly and for the world while they are actively doing evangelistic campaigns for the church and baptizing people? Yes. 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 So I'm to read you the, the passage from Jesus. You can look that one up on your own, Matthew 23, 15, where he basically said that very thing. Yes. So what about the good Samaritan? When he stopped to help the beaten man and cared for him, was he on mission for God? Yes. Yes. Do we have any record of the good Samaritan preaching the gospel, having a Bible study, or bringing the person to a baptismal ceremony? No. <laughs> well, if he wasn't baptizing him into Jesus, how could he be on mission for God? Doing good. You can plant a seed and be on mission for God. It was in his heart. Is there a difference between being on a mission for Jesus Christ and being on mission for a denominational church? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yes. I, I didn't hear as robust a yes to that one. <laughs> I think they work together. Too, Somebody said they think they work together. They certainly can work together. No question about it. Does that mean they are consistently and reliably working together? No. No. no, no, sometimes, yeah, they are. How would you describe the mission that God wants from each one of us? What that we all are on mission. How would you describe it? It's your relationship with Jesus Christ. Once you get that right, everything else follows. I, I like that because when you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you you're living out His principles wherever you go, and and you might be thinking that. You're just going to the grocery store to do some errands, but your demeanor, your attitude, the words you speak, the smile on your face, you're actually, without even necessarily knowing it, representing Christ to people. Mm. Is there a hand in the back? Yeah, I think it's really, you know, God uses us all in whatever field we're in to exemplify our relationship with him and draw people to us. So that's the neat thing about us all being missionaries as lay people because we touch so many different people in so many different areas of the marketplace. Yeah. Okay. I love that. I love that. So in the lesson, it focuses on Jonah and compares his mission to Nineveh with Abraham's conversation with God over Sodom. Why did God destroy Sodom, but not Nineveh? Well, the people of Nineveh converted. Their hearts were turned back to God, but Sodom, they were very simple. There you go. They repented. They were not beyond redemption. The evidence from the conversation with Abraham made it clear that no amount of love, no amount of truth would have any positive impact on the people of Sodom. They had permanently destroyed the faculties within them that respond to love and truth, and there was nothing more God could do for them. And evidently, in God's wisdom, looking down the corridors of time, leaving them where they were at that time would actually interfere with the plan of salvation with the children of Israel who would eventually occupy that land. And so he intervened to put them to sleep. Understand, he did not punish them the wages of sin, death. They're resurrecting again. All of them are coming back to life to finish out their life by their own free will choices. That's what happens at the end of the thousand years. Many people conflate that and think, oh, what he did there was he killed them. No, he put them to sleep, according to scripture, and they will rise again. If you want to put it this way, he put them in time out. He suspended them. The, the thoughts that they had, 
got turned off, like turning off the power. And when he turns the power back on, they start right where they left off. He just suspended it to allow other activities to be worked out. But he didn't end their life. Their, their lives will end at the end of the thousand years. Sunday's lesson points out that Nineveh was known as a violent city, cruel, abusive, that, and that perhaps Jonah was afraid of what they might do to him. Thus, the lesson points out, uh, points the fear as one of the obstacles to his mission. And if you read the last paragraph, it says, in spite of all this, we often read Jonah's story with disapproval for letting fear get in the way of carrying out God's instructions. What we fail to realize is that we can do the same thing, allow ourselves to be controlled by our fears rather than God. Any thoughts about that? Do we often look at Jonah with disapproval? Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the bald people. Knowing that where in the world did we get fear in our hearts? Where did it come from? Selfishness that we wanna we wanna preserve ourselves and know and Jonah had a really good reason for being afraid of them. They were awful. They were you know, putting heads up on spikes outside a place. When they would take over somebody, they would just crush everything and, and uh, defile the bones of the, of the people that were important in the city. I mean, they were, they were a really vicious bunch. Unless you look into them, you don't realize why he was, he was uh, you know. He the question is, when did you, as an individual, begin to have fear in your life? When you were born, we burned. Yeah. Oh, so did any of you choose to have fear as a primary emotional experience that impacts your decision making, or were you born with it? Born, born, with, born with it. And so, where did, it, did did God create us with fear? Then fear is adaptive. Fear is healthy. We should be thankful for our fear. Adam and Eve. Sin came. So Adam and Eve, as soon as they sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. 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 Perfect. Yes. Per so fear becomes part of the human condition when Adam is sinned and we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So each one of us are born with a condition which is fear driven and fear manifests itself in all types of actions and behaviors of people. Think about the motivation for the greedy person, the person who wants to hoard wealth. What is the underlying motivation? Selfishness. Selfish. Self-protection. But what selfishness is the action, but what's motivating a person to be selfish? Fear. Fear, fear of poverty, fear of not being in control, fear of not having power, fear of not being liked. It's the fear that drives them to be selfish. As soon as Adam and Eve ran, uh, sin, they ran because they were afraid and immediately acted to protect self. It wasn't me, it was the woman. Self-preservation is driven by fear. So fear is the motive. What about the abuser? Why does one person abuse another person? What's the primary motive? Fear, insecurity, feeling put down, feeling uh, weak in some way, uh, not being able to process their own guilt and shame and thus projecting it on others and fearful that they'll be found out so they have to dominate and control. What about the cheat? Why does the cheat cheat? It's fear. Fear of not being lovable enough, and thus they're defending against their insecurities and fears by having multiple partners that make them for a moment feel valuable and lovable. What about the liar? Why does the liar lie? Fear of 
fear of what happens to him if the truth comes out. The megalomaniac who becomes a dictator, again, fear, and thus seeking to have more power and more power over others so you can make self feel safe by controlling what everybody does. What about the religious oppressors? The people that burn people at the stake and try to coerce the conscience, fear. The legalistic religious person with all their legalistic, mechanical, religious observances that they must carry out. And if they don't, what, what's the underlying motive if they don't do it? Fear. Fear. And so rule keeping makes them feel safe. It defends against fear. All this, essentially every action that abuses and exploits another person is motivated by fear. Have you ever seen people in church being controlled by fear in such a way that Jonah was so that they actually ran away from their mission like Jonah? You ever seen that? Oh, yeah. Yes or no? Yes. Yeah, what happened during COVID? Did churches shut down? Did people stop visiting the shut-ins? Did evangelism stop? Did schools close? Did, 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 did church missions stop? And what was the reason for it? We were afraid. Yeah. Fear. Fear. Now, you might have heard it was all based on claims of love. We're doing this because we love people. That's a lie. It is the most perverse kind of lie because love does not stop ministering to others. Love does not stop seeking to save souls, does not stop their mission for God. And love does not take away the freedom and liberty of others and coerced consciences. No, it was not driven by love. It was driven by fear. And fear is a tool of Satan. And fear rises where lies are told. Lies believe break the circle of love and trust and incite fear and selfishness. And there have been a mountain of lies that are still being told over what happened to the world over that issue. So what's the solution to the infection of fear? Truth and love. And freedom. Truth and love. Truth destroys the lies and perfect love casts out the fear. That's exactly right. And where is the source of truth and love? God. God is the source of both truth and love. So how do we experience or participate in God's eternal truth and infinite love? How do we do that? By knowing God. By knowing God. How do we do that? Spending time. Spending time with him. Is there a difference between knowing God and knowing about him? Oh, yes. 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 You know, many people study the Bible like you might study a book on Abraham Lincoln's life. You might, you might become an expert on Abraham Lincoln's life and, and, and the biographies and autobiographies and all the details and be able to cite when he did this and where he went that and when he wrote here and, and et cetera, et cetera, and all the details. You, you know all the stuff about Abraham Lincoln. Do you know Abraham Lincoln? No, no. And many people with doctoral degrees in theology are like that. They are experts in the details of the life of Jesus or the Bible or Old Testament studies or New Testament studies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But having a degree in studying about God or about the Bible is not the same thing as knowing God. Knowing God is experiential. And one does not have to have a graduate degree. Nobody had to study the life of Lincoln to actually know Lincoln. They had to, had to spend time with him. Satan counterfeits the truth with all forms of propaganda. And this, this is how he incites fear. 
replaces the truth with falsehood, propaganda. One of the most common ways to do this is getting people to replace evidence, facts, objective reality with authority, with claims, with proclamation. That person has a doctoral degree. That person ha is, a, is a physician. That person is the head of the CDC or the FDA, or, or they, sat, they sit in a position of authority. Thus, their voice of authority should be accepted as truth. Who am I to question the voice of authority? This is one of the ways he deceives. This was the Dark Ages church, the priest, the pope, they represent God. Uh, they have read the, the, the inspired writings. We don't even know how to read and write. They have said it is thus and so. Who are we to question? Oh, this guy over here named Galileo says that the, the earth revolves around the sun, but the priest said, oh no, the sun revolves around the earth because the earth is the center of God's kingdom. Who are we to question? We just believe what we're told. This is one of the things that happened in the Dark Ages. Do you recognize the exact same phenomenon happening in the world today? Voices of authority, and I mean outside the church, but it happens in the church too. Much of religion works this way still. The pastor said, the, the Biblical Research Institute has said, but outside the church, the doctors, the FDA, so forth and so on, these people with degrees have said, who are we to question? Well, who you are, you're beings created in the image of God with your own individuality, your own capacity for reasoning and thinking. And Romans 14, set five says, every person should be fully persuaded in their own mind. You, you are a person who has the capacity to think, reason, weigh evidences and draw conclusions with the help of the Holy Spirit who will give you discernment and wisdom if you ask. That's who you are. So I am, not, and I've said this before, I haven't said it in a while, I'm not here to tell any of you what to think. You have your own mind. But I will challenge you. I'll present ideas. Hopefully I'll present evidence. But at the end of the day, you have to weigh it out for yourself. So he counterfeits truth with propaganda, proclamations, authority of office. And he counterfeits love with a whole bunch of ways. Love in a bottle, alcohol, ecstasy, other drugs, porn, erotic exploitation, fame and glory seeking, being loved by the masses, getting more clicks on your account, codependent fear-based relationships of control manipulation with intense emotional attachment and highs, the codependent fear relationship, counterfeit to love, being loved for your sin, loved and valued by a group like a gang for doing gang violence, or by a cult for joining the cult, or by deviant groups for being deviant. Can you see other ways he counterfeits love? So yes, it's the truth and love that sets us free, but don't think that Satan doesn't try to replace truth with propaganda that people believe are truths, but they're not truths, or with other things that make them feel love that aren't actually love. He does. Like enabling? Is that another form of that? Enabling is part of the codependent dynamic. That's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Doing what makes you feel good in the moment rather than what is objectively good for the other person. 
Monday's lesson, the lesson is on false views that interfere with our mission for God. Can you think of any false views that interfere with the church's mission today? False view of God. Listen to the first paragraph, and I got to tell you, I was quite astounded when I read this. I found it astounding. It's true. It's absolutely true. But it's astounding that it's in the quarterly. Okay? This is uh, the first paragraph. It says, when the storm came, Jonah blamed himself. His attitude does reveal something about the kind of worldview and understanding of the God or gods that many had back then. Back then. While various gods they believed ruled in the various lands, the sea was deemed the chaotic realm of demons. In the worldview of the mariners, sacrifice was needed to appease their wrath. Although Jonah was a Hebrew, he quite possibly had a worldview that was influenced by the traditional beliefs of the time. This is absolutely true. And do you think the lesson is suggesting that we should not believe in a God who requires sacrifice to appease his wrath? Or that we should believe in that kind of God? What do you think they're telling us? We should not believe in that kind of God, right? And you notice how this is said, this is said in a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of a criticism, the way they believed back then. But my question is, do Christians teach a God who requires the sacrifice of an innocent human to propitiate, assuage, appease, expiate, or in some way turn away his wrath? Oh, I'm just going to run through a, a group of, of texts here. I don't need want, want to. I don't want to claim it. So I want to give you evidence. So let's just run through some quotes. Roman Catholic position: Christ, because he was guiltless, sin-free, and in favor with God, could offer himself up as a means of persuading God to relent of his angry wrath against the sins of mankind. There's the first one. Eastern Orthodox: Christ was for Christ was for us a curse through being hung upon the tree of the cross so as to offer himself as a sacrifice to his father to annihilate the sentence of God by the superabundant worth of the sacrifice. Methodist, this is the longest of the quotes. The suffering, of, and it's also the most convoluted and difficult to understand, but it, it, it follow, try to follow it. The, the, the sufferings of Christ are an atonement for sin by substitution in the sense that they were intentionally endured for sinners under judicial condemnation and for the sake of their forgiveness. They are an atonement for sin in the sense that they render its forgiveness consistent with the divine justice. They provide for such constancy in the sense that justice that justice none the less fulfills the rectoral office in its interest of moral government. Such office of justice is so fulfilled in the sense that in granting forgiveness only on the ground of such substitution in the atonement, the honor and authority of the divine ruler, together with the right and interest of his subjects are equally maintained as by the infliction of merited penalty upon sin. Do you see how that's really convoluted? But what it's saying is we get to have forgiveness because the penalty was punished in Jesus and God accepts that penalty in our place and thus his wrath is assuaged. That's what they're saying. Reformation theology. Jesus took upon himself the punishment that the sins of his people deserved. In other words, the reformers understood that the atonement is satisfaction by means of punishment. God, the punishment was taken. God's wrath is satisfied. Evangelical. We affirm that the atonement of Christ by which in his obedience, he offered a perfect sacrifice, propitiating the Father, 
by paying for our sins and satisfying divine justice on, behalf, on our behalf according to God's eternal plan is an essential element of the gospel. Pentecostal, the word propitiation properly signifies the turning away of wrath by sacrifice. This, thus it signifies appeasement. According to Leon Morris, the consistent Bible view is that the sin of man has incurred the wrath of God. The wrath is averted only by Christ's atoning offering. From this standpoint, his saving work is properly called propitiation. And then Seventh-day Adventists, this is only one. I have five, six, seven, eight, 10, 15, multiple places in various, um, not in Ellen White's quotes, but in other theologians' quotes. This is out of one of our quarterlies from 2011. The Hebrew word in both Leviticus 9.24 and 10.2 and was the same, and fire came out from God and from the Lord and consumed. Consumed what? In the first case, the offering, and the other, the sinner, sinners. What a powerful representation of the plan of salvation. At the cross, the fire of, from God, the wrath of God, consumed the offering, and that was Jesus. So the, the lesson criticizes these mariner pagans for believing that they had to offer sacrifice to the gods to appease the gods' wrath. Have I just made the case that Christianity teaches the same thing? Yes. Yes. It's paganism. And this is one of the core infections. Christianity teaches the idea that God's wrath has to be appeased. And it's just by the blood of his son instead of some animal sacrifice. If this is true then, if it's true, what we just read in all these different sources, then where is the sacrifice of Christ being applied? Where is it doing its work, having its influence, applying its merits, or exercising its power, if all those statements are true? Changing God. Changing God. Notice that. If all those statements are true, the power of the crucifixion is being applied to God himself. Mm -hmm. Then what, if that's true, what does that actually mean then? That God was the problem all along. That God's the problem and he needs fixing. And that is Satan's lie from the beginning. And that is what has infected Christianity. Wow. So how do we change it? So what's the root lie? The what is the reason Christianity does this? Because there's a root lie that always causes a person who believes this lie to conclude all the stuff we just went through. You can't escape it. If you believe this one lie, all of that other stuff, God is the source of death. God must punish. God must kill. Someone has to pay the penalty. All of it comes in its train if you believe this one lie. Because the law of God functions like man's law. There you go. If God's law functions like human law, made up rules with no inherent consequence, then justice requires the rule giver to use his power to punish rule breaking. And therefore, Jesus had to take our punishment and therefore apply his innocent blood to the ruling magistrate to legally get some type of mechanical a pardon or action from that God so he won't kill us. It's all based on worshiping uh, on the false law construct, which results in us worshiping a creature because creatures make up rules like that. The creator builds reality and his laws are the laws upon which reality function in deviation from his laws cause ruin and death. And that's why the Bible teaches the wages of sin is death. Sin when full grown brings forth death. Those who sow to the carnal nature from that nature reap destruction. That Jesus died to destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. Death does not come out from God. 
It comes from sin, and Satan is the source of sin, so he's the murderer from the beginning that is destroying God's creation. And when we accept the lie that God's law works like human law, we end up creating a theology that has the deity functioning like these pagan gods. Ultimately, it's Satan's mischaracterization of God. Questions about that? And this happened when Rome took over. It happened to Christianity when Rome took over Christianity and substituted Roman law for God's law. And much of the Protestant Reformation has been people protesting specific Romanization elements of various kinds, rules that the Roman church made up without ever questioning the core underlying problem of how the law functions itself. And so they argue back and forth over, well, baptism by immersion or baptism by sprinkling, whether priests can marry or can't marry, et cetera, et cetera. They argue all the rules, but they all still agree that God's law works like human law and God in justice must use his power to kill. How do we get to that point? Do we get there because, you know, we were trying to bring in pagan religions into Christianity to have a, uh, just instead of having a bunch of gods, we could have just one god to offer a sacrifice to, and that's how it originally came in, and then we decided that we were God's creatures and created by him, so we must be at some have some sort of a wisdom that his law must function like our law come into the system. Well, how it got into Christianity, because Christ, the Jews struggled with the same misunderstanding. Satan started the same lie in heaven. And we have a new magazine that's in layout right now, and we hope to have it out in six to eight, 12 weeks, something like that. It depends on the production process. But the new magazine that we have coming out is entitled The Lie That Deceived Angels Infects the Church and Delays the Coming of Christ. And it goes through the history and this lie started in heaven, Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed, that uh, mercy was inconsistent with justice, and it should humans sin, they could not be forgiven. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan from the open. And he made this allegation that, that God's law requires the infliction of punishment. And that was how it started in heaven. And this is exactly what happened in Eden. Did God say in the day you eat, you will die? Oh, no, you won't. There's actually nothing harmful about sin. I'm not saying the all-powerful God won't kill you, but you won't die from sin. This is the contrast. You either die from sin or God kills you. And his allegation in the beginning, oh, no, you won't die. You'll actually become like God knowing good from evil, okay? So the so there's nothing inherently wrong with breaking God's law. And that came down through, and you see that through the Old Testament, and the Jewish nation and the Jewish people accepted the legal version at Sinai. All the things God said we will do, and they became a very legalistic, rules-oriented system of fear and punishment and so forth. <clears throat> and then Jesus sets it all right. Go back and study his parables. Everything Jesus taught is design law. Every single thing he taught is design law, how objective reality works, resetting it all. And the church started out apostolic, the apostolic church, loving other people, refusing to use coercive tactics on others, and the gospel spread. And so Satan used initial tactics, Saul of Tarsus and the Roman armies, to try and snuff out the emerging church. 
But the more he persecuted them in the arenas of Rome, the more they loved each other, the more the gospel spread. And so he switched strategies and instead Christianized paganism. And Constantine converted. And when Constantine converted, the very first thing Constantine does, immediately after he claims to be Christian, he passes laws of the Roman state that anyone who speaks against the, the Christian church will be punished. Anybody who doesn't uh, keep Sunday, which is the Christian holiday that he's declared, will be punished. And he begins using the power of state imperial law. And this idea of imperialism became orthodoxy. And then when the papal seat took over, Christianity for a thousand years, the entire canon law imposed, made up rules, became the orthodoxy of Christian thought. And then by the time the Reformation came and the Bible begins to be translated in the language of the people, no one questions how God's law work. All the translators uh, agree that God makes up rules and justice require God punish. And so the translations came out, helped break away a lot of the traditions, but Many much legal language got translated in, and the Reformation hasn't been finished until we finally do Revelation 14 and begin to judge God as creator and not a dictator and worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all them that in them is. And that is the message that lightens the world for Christ's return, and that's where we are. But Tim, can I also add, and we've said this before, but I still think it merits listening to again, Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Not we are judged righteous or whatever by his wounds we are healed and so one of the things i really appreciate about this ministry is moving the view from a courtroom to a hospital that meant a, as, as a nurse that meant a lot to me because i could really see you know the sacrifice that that people make to help heal others for example and how this whole thing is about healing and yet it's somehow become like you were suggesting that it's become a legal courtroom process. And, and, and that's because they accept the lie about God's law. When you go back to design law and understand he's the creator and he builds reality and his laws are the protocols upon which life functions, not just physical life, but spiritual life, relational life, mental life, all health operates in harmony with God's designs. Then you understand that sin transgresses or breaks away from how life is constructed to operate. And the only consequence is ruin and death unless the creator restores us to harmony with the law, thus he writes his law in our hearts and minds. And so that's the whole plan of salvation is not doing something to God, it's doing something to the human being, first and foremost, in the human being, Jesus Christ, who became a real human being for the purpose of restoring humanity back into harmony with God and winning the victory as a human that no human, other human could do. And then in us, through his agency, the Holy Spirit, who takes the victory of Christ and reproduces it in us and writes his law in our hearts and minds. And thus we live victorious lives, not through our power, but through our surrender and willing cooperation with the power of God working in us. And so what you read in Isaiah, God foresaw it and knew that Jesus was coming and taking up our iniquity, our infirmity, our sin-sick condition for the purpose of healing and overcoming it. Yet we would misunderstand and we would claim that God was doing this, that God was killing him, that God was striking him. God, 
And the Bible's very clear. Jesus' own testimony. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? Let me go. God didn't use any power against them at all. But from our own Adventist quarterly, I just showed you that they teach that God rained fire down from heaven to burn Jesus up, punish him for our sin. It's just complete fraud. And they can't get around it until they stop believing that God's law works like Roman law. But just to be sure, because if I stop right here, somewhere somebody will listen to this presentation and conclude, oh, you all don't believe in substitutionary atonement. This happens all the time. So let's just clear that up. We absolutely believe in substitutionary atonement. No human being could be saved from sin without the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his sinless life, his voluntary self-sacrificial death, his resurrection and ascension. But we believe it for the reason the Bible says it and what it achieves. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, their substitution, and it tells you why. So that, here's the reason, here it's coming, get ready, so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then John the Baptist said, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not the Lamb of God who's going to be punished in our place so he can go to heaven and, and present that sacrifice to the Father to assuage his wrath, wrath so he can declare us to be righteous even though we're not. No, he's going to actually take away the sin condition, the sinfulness, and then we're going to get new hearts and right spirits so that we become righteous, not simply declared righteous. And then 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 19. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. This is scripture. This is design law. This is rejected by those who accept the imperial law. God was not saving us. It was Jesus that was saving us. And he's in heaven pleading his blood to the father to propitiate his wrath because the father's holiness and righteousness and justice requires that the father kill us. But, but, but the father did love us and he sent his son and he put all the sins of Jesus past, present, and future on Jesus, all the sins of us on Jesus, and then he killed Jesus in our behalf, and he'll accept that payment, and you get to declare to be righteous, even though you remain unrighteous, don't worry about it. Keep living your sinful life. Don't have any victory. Keep struggling with your, your sins and your bad habits, because you know what? God has declared you righteous, and you get to be accounted that way, even though you're still corrupt. And you can never be perfect here on earth, even though the Bible says, be ye perfect, as the Father in heaven is, in per is perfect, in the setting of love. And when you have the human law model, Bible perfection is about how well you carry out deeds and tasks. And because we're human and we stumble and we fall and our tasks come short, whether it's dribbling soup on your chin or tripping on your way into Sabbath school, okay, no matter what it is, okay. How would you know that? No matter what it is, okay, when you have the human law model, it's all about how well you perform. But when you have the design law model, it's about how well you love and trust. And that's when you are one to love and trust in God, 
then even when your performance isn't the perfect, your attitude towards God is. And that's Job and many other places. But he's perfect and righteous in all his ways. He wasn't sinless. He had lots of questions. He didn't get everything he said right. God had to correct him on a couple of things. But what he had right was he knew that if he could talk to God, it would get worked out. What he had right was he knew God had the answers. He knew God had the solution. He knew there was no other path other than God and his loyalty and faithfulness stuck with God. That's what a perfect person is. And that is a heart transformation who trusts him even though they didn't understand everything. Yes, hand in the back. Yeah, I think we're talking about mission. This is like one of the greatest missions I think we could do is to help people to understand the real character of God that he is love and truth, that he is a, a wrathful, vengeful God who needed a sacrifice of his son to heal us from our sin. He sent him to reconcile us to God through his love and through his life. That's that's like the most important thing I think we all need to understand right there. Yeah. You're you're exactly correct. And this is why we are doing all that we're doing to try to try to help fo- help folks realize that. And and the key to it, I'll tell you, you can talk about Jesus' love. The people who live in the imperial law lie that God is required to punish. I don't know any of them who do not believe that God is love. They will say God is love. They will believe Jesus is love. They will celebrate the crucifixion. They will see God's love manifest in Christ. But at the end of the day, they still live in fear of God and are thankful that Jesus stands between them and Father to protect them from the Father's wrath. So they haven't actually come to know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. They've come to believe God is love, but this idea of law and in, in, in required inflicted punishment cheats them out of the full joy, peace, and victory they could have. And that's a trap of the devil. And ultimately will lead them to worship a God who justice requires use power. And when the beast system of revelation rises to do justice against evil and wickedness, uh, and, and God comes back and, and says, I, I, I only want you to love me. Oh, I've sacrificed myself for you. I, I've invited you. But at the end of the day, if you really won't worship and love me as much as I hate it, I have to punish you. Please don't make me punish you. Please accept me as your savior. Do you understand how many Christians believe that's exactly what Jesus will do in the end? That's just like an abuser. Yep. Yes, exactly. So the Tuesday's lesson um, focuses on the inconvenience as an obstacle. And the first paragraph says, Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish, see Jonah 2, was a dramatic show of God's love and mercy. And Jonah's prayer reveals that he didn't miss God's message of love. But just because he had had an incredible encounter with God didn't mean that his old thought habits or attitudes would easily change, even though he went to Nineveh anyway. I actually think this is a very important point and one that many Christians don't fully appreciate. When we are truly converted to Jesus, we have a wonderful, powerful experience with him. We experience peace, the removal of guilt, the resolution of shame. We have joy and a desire for better living and a new lease on life, a new perspective, a new heart and right spirit. But all of these new attitudes, desires, motives of the reborn person are still functioning, living, operating upon the old hardware 
a brain that we built prior to conversion with various neural pathways, habit patterns, conditioned responses that were laid down in our neurobiology before we gave our heart to Christ. Because of this, even though we have new desires, new motives, and new heart that rejoices in the truth and is repulsed by evil, we still have habits, preconditioned responses, and neural pathways that when certain circumstances will exert themselves, and sometimes we react in ways that we no longer want to react to and we're upset by. That's not who I am, what I want to do. And if we don't understand this process that I'm talking about, the devil will step in and whisper his lies and discourage us. Things like, we will begin to doubt our conversion. Was I really converted? Maybe I just had an emotional high during a powerful sermon. We doubt our salvation. Well, God gave me grace, but I just blew it again. It was, it was my 70th times seven. That's more than 490 times. There's no hope for me. Or, or we're vulnerable to doubt. God, my godless friends are right. Christianity is just a lie. If God were real, then I wouldn't keep falling back into old habits. After all, God is supposed to be more powerful than my, my habits. This is what happens. But when we understand this reality that I'm describing to you, that we get new hearts and right spirits here and now, but we do not get new biology until the mortal puts on immortality and the corruption puts on incorruption at the second coming, that means we will continue to struggle against some of these old habits and preconditioned responses. But the moment one of them exerts itself, the converted person is grieved in their soul. Oh, yeah. oh, I hate being this way. Oh, what a wretched man am I. Who will save me from this body? And we go to Christ and we experience again his grace. And over the course of time, as we exercise new patterns of behavior, these old patterns slowly prune back. Our neurobiology changes. And over the course of time, they exert themselves less often and less often and less often. And as we do the healthy and righteous, they become wired in and we do those more often and more often. And there's a gradual transformation of the daily habit patterns of the life because a new heart is exerting itself over the old biology. Amen. And if you'd like to read more about that, I put it in the notes, but I'm not going to read it. It's too long. That Read the remedy, Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 in the remedy describes this. This was the what Paul was describing when he said, the things I don't want to do, I sometimes find myself doing. Yes. So in the fifth paragraph, the lesson states, and finally, being involved in mission often requires that we change how we feel about and use our money. Whether related to providing care for people, purchasing literature and outreach materials, or paying for services or conveniences to free up time for mission work, there are expenses related to mission. Whatever form it takes, mission work requires sacrifice. Now, I, I don't disagree with anything that's said there. I, I think that's exactly true. We have to reevaluate how we use our money. But based on this paragraph, I wanted to add an additional thought. Does using our money for mission, as God would have us use it, require that we prayerfully and carefully consider where one places their money? 
would 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 we prayerfully and carefully consider what is the message being presented by the materials and the organization for which we're considering supporting with our money? Do we want to donate to support materials that we believe are misrepresenting God and actually teaching this pagan version of wrathful God who must be appeased? Do we want to give our money to do that? And I'm going to be very clear. I can't tell anyone where to give their tithes and offerings, but I can advance what I believe is God's principle, that we are to support the gospel ministry with our resources, and that requires us to individually know for ourselves what is the good news, what is the gospel, and then evaluate whether the places we're placing our money is actually advancing the gospel as we understand it. So many people I know give money because they grew up in certain patterns of giving that they were taught in certain organizations, and they never actually sat back to evaluate, does the organization actually present the gospel or not? Do you think I'm wrong about that? No. No. Wednesday's lesson, second paragraph, so Jonah had such deep hatred for the people God sent him to, that he felt it was better that he die than to lose face when the failure of his doomsday preaching against Nineveh was revealed. Jonah wanted Nineveh to be the next Sodom and Gomorrah. He was hoping for God's judgment on these hated people. When it didn't happen, his worldview was being shaken to the core, and Jonah would rather die than allow his world to be turned upside down. The day's title for this lesson where we quoted this paragraph is Uncomfortable Confrontation. What is the uncomfortable confrontation that Jonah had to face? His reputation. Was was, was Jonah's discomfort, his uncomfortable confrontation in confronting the people that he hated or was it in confronting the emotions in his own heart? Yeah. And God pointed that out by saying, you care more about this plant that I sprung up and now it's dead than you care about all this 120,000 people plus the animals, even added animals. You don't care for any of them. This is an important point. So many patients that come to see me are upset, angry, about something or someone in their life when they haven't actually resolved their own, and they avoid doing things because that other person is going to be there. It'll be, it'll be stressful. I might have to see this person. I have to do this. And, and they think that the other person is the obstacle when it's their own uncomfortable feelings about the person that is the obstacle. So in Book Steps Price, page 43, we read the following. Tell me if you agree with this. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, requires a struggle. But the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. Agree or disagree? Agree. So the confrontation, the greatest confrontation, the greatest battle. Jonah's battle was, was with his own prejudices, biases, fear, anger, resentment, hatred, this kind of stuff. And our, our greatest battles are confronting 
our internal issues of fears, guilt, shame, self-righteousness, pride, arrogance, expectations, fantasies, desires, demands, self-centeredness. This is the greatest battle we each have to fight. Many people think that others in their environment are the problem when the problem is how they react, how they feel, how they respond, including when we've actually been done wrong. Somebody's done objective wrong to us. And we're angry, we're bitter, we're resentful for the wrong. It was wrong. Everybody agrees it was wrong. It was wrong for the Jews to reject Christ. It was wrong for the Romans to condemn him, to beat him, to spit on him, to mock him, to crucify him. It was wrong. It was objective wrong. And therefore, when we see Jesus on the cross crying out, Father, it's just not fair. They're treating me this way. I've only done good things. This is just unfair, Father. We actually admire him saying those things, don't we? Oh, wait a minute. He didn't say those things, did he? But had Jesus said those things, those words would have been factually true. It was not fair. It was unfair. But would we admire Jesus and would we see the, the Savior that we esteem and look up to in character if he spoke those words? No, we would see someone who is selfish and concerned with themselves. It's not fair what they're doing to me. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. (laughs) And they were wrong in how they treated him, 100% wrong. But Jesus was right in showing that his kingdom is not based on selfishness. It's based on love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They think they're destroying and killing me. They're actually destroying their own souls for all eternity and cutting themselves off from any hope of salvation because they're rejecting me. Now, which version do you like better? Which Jesus do you respect and admire more? Who do you want to be more like? Jesus. And so when Jesus instructs us to love our enemies and pray for those who abuse us, Who is the primary beneficiary of following those instructions? The abuser or the abused? Mm -hmm. Who is the one who reaps the most benefit from loving their enemies? Who will 100% of the time, if they apply this, this person will always reap benefits from doing it. Who's that person? The abuser or the abused? The abused. You can actually come to the point where in thinking and praying about that person who was abusive or mistreated you in some way, if you think of them, uh, you become compassionate because They are people generally who are wounded, who have never been healed, and all they're doing is passing on the fire of their wound to whoever they're around. And they will never have the kind of life that most people want. They want a a family and love and all this kind of thing, but if if all they ever do is abuse the people around them, they will never get what they really need and what they want. Mm -hmm. Exactly right, Linda. And what happens inside of us when someone does objective wrong to us and we don't forgive. We don't respond with grace or mercy or love. And instead we respond with righteous indignation, bitterness, resentment, and the desire for revenge, even if we process that desire through the legal justice system, 
or even better, we are patiently waiting for the day God judges them and makes them suffer as much as they deserve. No. <laughs> what happens inside of us if we go down that trail? We keep we going that way. We become bitter. Yeah, we still we have blood pressure and stress. Costs too much money. We become more like Satan. <laughs> no, this is exactly right. If you go down that trail, it activates stress circuits. It actually interferes with your ability to love. You live in fear. You live in resentment. You cause ruminating loops to happen. And then that activates stress cascades, which increases inflammation in the body, and you actually wear yourself out and you die younger. I mean, it's harmful. And that's, that's assuming that you can actually not let that stuff uh, cascade into your other relationships because you're so angry that you are more sensitive and you respond more irritably to people who haven't wronged you because you remain angry for the person who has, has never been punished yet. And this, this usually happens. And over the course of time, people who won't forgive, who hold on to resentment, typically become like the person who abused them, hard-hearted, self-centered, angry, bitter people. And this is why God told us to forgive. Forgiveness doesn't mean what the person did was wrong. In fact, excuse me, what the person did was right. In fact, when do you ever forgive people for doing the right thing? <laughs> By definition, if you're forgiving someone, the act of forgiveness defines that what was done was wrong. We only forgive wrongs. So it never makes it right. It never gets them, it doesn't make excuses. It doesn't give them a free pass and it doesn't give them a free pass because of the design law. When somebody does evil to another person, it actually causes hardening of the heart, searing of the conscience, warping of the character. And if they don't repent, they deny, distort and the faculties get damaged. Nobody who actually commits sin ever gets away with it because the person who commits sin always injures themselves and hardens their own heart. They can only be, if they repent, they can be healed from it but there's still a soul wound that has to be healed. Yes? Um, I can testify to that. I've said it several times in here before, but the night of my conversion, after all of that bitterness, anger, resentment, and even hatred came out of me that night, and my soul was left with peace afterwards. After that happened, I had a lot of changes happen to me in that first week. And one of them was that I started feeling the love that I had buried because I had become so angry at the people that hurt me so bad that I had, I was, I was consumed. I'm, you're describing everything that I went through, but after that was over, God replaced my heart with peace. Love started coming back into my soul. And I went back and I apologized to the people that hurt me for what I had done wrong because my heart had been changed. And I went back humbling myself and it didn't matter to me. I didn't care, there wasn't any pride there. I went back and confessed everything that I'd ever done in my marriage, in my friendships. It's, it didn't matter because I was changed and it has been a long process, but... And don't you have more peace and joy in life now? Yes. Yes. Praise God for that. Amen. Thank you for that. Amen.
Yep. Let, let, and thank you for that testimony, because that's exactly right. You cannot avoid the harm and damage that comes from breaking away from God's laws. You might call them the laws of health. And you cannot avoid the healing and rejuvenation and life that comes from harmonizing with them. And thus the Bible in Psalms 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your love, for your truth, for your design for how you built us to operate in harmony with your perfect character of love. We ask for your spirit to be poured out upon us, not only enlightening us with the truth, but transforming us with your presence, that we can be effective represent, representatives of you in this world, that the world can be lighted, and you will come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Amen.